Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. We just want to take a moment here and give a plug for Institute. Mike and I teach at the Salt Lake Institute of Religion near the University of Utah. Here at this institute, there are great instructors teaching a variety of classes just like this podcast. In fact, institutes are all over the world, and they are available to anyone between the ages of 18 and 30. Students can come on in and have their questions answered, learn more about the Savior and the Scriptures, and meet other young people of like faith. There's no cost to students, and you do not need to be enrolled at the university or the college adjacent to the institute. Just come and enjoy. You don't even have to start right at the beginning of the semester. If you come home from your mission or just all of a sudden decide one day you want to take an institute class and it's the middle of the semester, we'd love to have you. If you or someone you love lives near the Salt Lake Institute or any institute, please encourage them to sign up for a class. We even have online courses available. We've added a link on our website, TalkingScripture.org, that will help you find an institute near you and register for a class. And with that, today we are going to be in section 18 and 19, aren't we? And it's really good that we only have those two because there's a lot of history here. So the three witnesses have been called. They've had their experience with the angel. They've seen the plates. One of them is Martin Harris. Now, the Book of Mormon is in the process of being prepared for the printer. Joseph Smith learned from the loss of the manuscript that he's never going to let the original out of his sight. So he asked Oliver to copy every single page onto another copy that we then take to the printer. So that's what's happening right now as we prepare for publication. Now that involves Martin Harris, and Mike's going to tell us kind of the whole reason there's a section 19, and then we're going to jump into a very profound doctrine that we find in the restored church through section 19. The background of section 19 is Martin Harris's struggle. Martin knows that the Lord has asked him to mortgage his farm. There's a lot of pushback in Palmyra, and people have actually boycotted it and said, hey, we're not going to buy it. We're not going to be part of this. And it's a lot of money that he's going to give up. In fact, about 151 acres of his farm is going to be given for the production of this. And he's stressed. He's really worried about this. There's an account from Joseph Knight I want to share that gives us a little bit of background to where Martin's heart is. And these are Joseph Knight's words as he's talking about the stresses that Martin's feeling. He says, in the spring of 1830, I went with my team and took Joseph to Manchester to his father. When we was on our way, so this is how Joseph's talking, so these are his words. When we was on our way, he told me that there must be a church formed, but did not tell when. Now we got near to his father's, we saw a man some 80 rods before us run across the street with a bundle in his hand. There, says Joseph, there is Martin going across the road with something in his hand. Says I, how could you know him so far? Says he, I believe it is him. And when we came up to Martin with a bunch of Mormon books, as he calls them, or the copies of the Book of Mormon, he came to us, and after compliments, he says, the books will not sell, for nobody wants them. Joseph says, I think they will sell well. Says he, I want a commandment. So Martin wants a commandment. Why, says Joseph, fulfill what you have got. But, says he, 
This is Martin speaking. I must have a commandment. Joseph put him off, but he insisted three or four times, he must have a commandment. And so the context of this is Martin, I I totally see him struggling here where he's like, I know that this is God's work. I know this book is true, but there's got to be another way. I just don't want to have to give up everything that I've worked for. He's realizing that the risk is pretty high because if he puts down $3,000 and they don't sell 5,000 copies, he's going to be out a lot of money. And he may very well lose this farm if this book doesn't sell. And people are now pushing back on the idea of buying the book, right, Mike? Yeah. I mean, they're saying we're not going to buy it. It's not going to happen. And there's so much pressure. I mean, we can't even fathom the kind of money this is and the kind of pressure. One historian said that Joseph's entire land holdings amounted to about $200 and he was making payments. And so if you think about what $3,000 back then was, and so Martin's, he's feeling the stress. This is a big risk. Yeah. If the book doesn't sell, it's, it's huge. And so there's his hesitancy. By the way, the irony of this is Oh, an 1830 copy. I'm sorry to just say this, but an 1830 one, copy is worth so much, right? One book today would cover the whole cost of the printing. <laughs> oh my goodness. So a principle seems to be at work here. It seems to be that one way to read section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants is this, that if the Lord's already spoken, then maybe we should listen to the first answer. This should sound familiar if you're familiar with Doctrine and Covenants 3 through 5. Listen to the first answer. We've talked about that before. And so in this revelation, the Lord is speaking to Martin in that context, meaning that Martin doesn't want to do this. And so readers of the Doctrine and Covenant, section 19, are in it, they're introduced to this idea about the Savior's suffering and the atonement, things that are not explicitly described anywhere else in canonized scripture. And to me, from my reading of section 19, this seems to be the only time that I've read where the Savior describes what it was like for him to go through the experience in the atonement. To me, it's important to see not only the history of these ideas, but it's also important to see how the Lord uses Joseph to reveal truth. And it shows to me what the restoration brings to the table, because it really does bring more light. It does. In section 18, verses 34 through 36, the Lord gives us these words. He says, these words, meaning the doctrine and covenants, These words are not of men, nor of man, but of me. Wherefore you shall testify they are of me and not of man. For it is my voice which speaketh them unto you, for they are given by my Spirit unto you, and by my power you can read them one to another, and save it were by my power you could not have them. Wherefore you can testify that you have heard my voice, and know my words, and I would add an implied next one, and that we can get to know him through his words. One of the most important things you can look for as you study the Doctrine and Covenants this year in Come Follow Me, I know your eyes are going to focus on the history of the church and the foundations of the Restoration. But as you study the Doctrine and Covenants, you can get to know God in a way that very few other books of Scripture will reveal. And today we're going to do that. Today we're going to take a very significant look as to why God punishes. What is the purpose of God's punishments? And what does that reveal about you and Him and your relationship? 
So jumping to section 19, the Lord just says, look, Martin, you've made a commitment. It's time to do it. He's coveting his own property. And the Lord says, let's talk about consequences and punishments. I would suggest to you that there is a preparatory punishment in preparation for a big punishment coming when we have to face judgment. I love that the Lord says in verse 20, I command you to repent, lest I humble you with my almighty power and you confess your sins, lest you suffer these punishments of which I have spoken, of which in the smallest, yea, even in the least degree you have tasted at the time I withdrew my spirit. So, you're going to face a punishment someday, Martin, that is grandiose. And you tasted a little bit of that punishment in this life when I withdrew my spirit. So do you see there's a preparatory punishment that we kind of experience in life when we feel guilty or when we lose the Holy Ghost or we face the consequences of our sins that is a preparatory punishment for what would happen if we don't repent. That word lest. Yeah. The context of 20, that time when you didn't have the spirit, what's he referring to there? He's talking about... I'm guessing when he lost a I think manuscript. So. I think, Do you I, remember what it felt like, the consequences of losing that manuscript, and you lost the spirit? Well, magnify that a zillion times, and you'll know what it's going to be like if you have to face eternal punishment. I mean, they both wept, yes. and they just ripped them to pieces. And it was So I think that—it's fascinating to me, Bryce, that the Lord is talking— to Martin. Yeah. And Martin knows exactly what he's talking about. Yep. And I think that's important, right? So let's realize if we go back to verse four, here's the rule, ready? Eternal rule. Every man must repent or suffer. That's what life is. It's a choice. Which of those two do you choose? Do you want to repent or suffer? And the Lord goes on to say, here's the deal. If you repent, then Jesus suffered. If you choose not to repent, then you nullify the Savior's suffering in your behalf, and you now have to pay the penalty that he paid. So he says, verse 16, I, God, have suffered these things for all that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. And then he describes his suffering which we'll get to in a minute. But the idea here is this life is a test to see if you choose to repent or if you choose to say, no, I don't want to have anything to do with the Savior's atonement. Therefore, the consequences of that is, well, then you have to pay the penalties that Jesus paid for you. You have to, you have to answer the ends of the law yourself. So there is an eternal punishment coming for those who choose not to participate in the atonement. Now, what's interesting is he's going to teach us about that punishment. So let's focus a little bit on what we mean by eternal punishment. Go back to verse 6. He says, it is not written that there shall be no end to this torment, even though it's called endless torment. So the Lord's saying, let me clarify, endless torment is an endless torment. What? 
Then in verse 7, he says, it is written, it's called eternal damnation. But let me explain it to you in verse 8. And he says, verse 10, I am endless. I am eternal. Therefore, the punishment that he gives out is called endless's punishment. Eternal's punishment. It's called eternal punishment because he is eternal, not because it lasts forever. There can be and is an end to torment and punishment. That's what he's trying to teach. And by the Don't way, this is radical theology. This is really deep radical theology. Yeah. Um, in a hellfire and damnation type of environment, Joseph is saying eternal punishment doesn't last eternally. It has an end. It's called eternal punishment because his name is eternal, and this is his punishment. Therefore, it's eternal's punishment. So then he clarifies in verse 11, eternal punishment is God's punishment. Those are synonyms. God's punishment is called eternal punishment. Endless punishment is God's punishment. Those are synonyms. So don't think that there isn't an exit to punishment. And now we enter this whole idea of why then does God punish? Now, let's be honest. Sometimes we impose on God human characteristics, and quite often we punish to get even. We punish to get revenge. We punish because we're mad. We're offended that they broke our commandments, and we want justice. I think all of us have watched a parent and a child, like in the grocery store, throws a little fit, and the parent gets embarrassed and angry, and you can tell that kid is going to be punished probably out of revenge's sake, probably to get back at the child and scare them into ever embarrassing their mom or their dad in the supermarket again. If we impose those motives on God, it changes our hope for salvation, our expectation. It changes how we repent. It changes our faith. Because if God is punishing me because he's trying to get revenge or he's getting even or he's mad, then he's not the God that we all hope he is. And we often impose man's desires for punishment on God. So he's saying, let me tell you how and why God punishes. And what he's trying to establish here is it's not eternal. God's punishment ends as soon as his objectives are met. So then the question is, what are the objectives? So what does God have? What's his objective when he punishes us, when he hurts us, when he caused, like he says to Martin Harris, when he withdrew the spirit and he knew that that would hurt Martin Harris? What are his objectives when he punishes? What is God's punishment? 
Well, 100 years after the church's organization. So in the April 1930 General Conference. So we've been a church for 100 years. One of the most brilliant men that has ever walked this planet, James E. Talmadge. If you've ever read Jesus the Christ, you know exactly how brilliant that man is. He stands up in general conference and says, over the last 100 years, here's what we've learned. This is what the restoration has taught us. And he gives us a beautiful list of some of the most important doctrines that have come through the restoration. And this one made the list. Clearly, this has an impact on James E. Talmadge saying, of all the restored truths, boy, this is one we need to know. And at that general conference, he said the following. Mike's got it, and Mike's going to read it. I like to call this quote, hell has an entrance and it has an exit. Yes. This is James E. Talmadge. During this hundred years, many other great truths not known before have been declared to the people. And one of the greatest is that to hell, there is an exit as well as an entrance. Hell is no place to which a vindictive judge sends prisoners to suffer and to be punished principally for his glory. His glory. Notice that? Hell isn't somewhere that God sends you for his glory. That's profound. He doesn't punish for his sake. Instead, keep going, Mike. But... It is a place prepared for the teaching, the disciplining of those who failed to learn here upon the earth what they should have learned. True, we read of everlasting punishment, unending suffering, eternal damnation. That is a direful expression. But in his mercy, the Lord has made plain what those words mean. Eternal punishment, he says, is God's punishment, for he is eternal. And that condition or state or possibility will ever exist for the sinner who deserves and really needs such condemnation. But this does not mean that the individual sufferer or sinner is to be eternally and everlastingly made to endure and suffer. No man will be kept in hell longer than is necessary to bring him to a fitness for something better. Now, this is where we need the choirs to sing. This is where we need background music, and this is the crescendo. What Mike just read is the crescendo of this doctrine. No one will be kept in hell longer than is necessary to change them. The whole purpose of punishment is to change. And then... When he reaches that stage, the prison doors will open, and there will be rejoicing among the hosts who welcome him into a better state. The Lord has not abated in the least what he has said in earlier dispensations concerning the operation of his law and his gospel, but he has made clear unto us his goodness and mercy through it all. For it is his glory and his work to bring about the immortality and eternal life of man. That is such amazing doctrine. That God's punishment, the whole reason there is a hell, the whole reason the Holy Ghost is pulled away from us, the reason bishops withdraw the sacrament from sinners, the reason there's punishment, the reason God punishes his children isn't for revenge or hurt them or to get even, it's to change them into a better state that will make them happier. I'm going to read from Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 21 through 23. Listen carefully to the Lord. He says, But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live and shall not die. 
All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. And then this statement, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways? and live. God does not take pleasure in our pain. He doesn't take pleasure in our punishment. He doesn't he's not happy that we're getting it. He's simply helping us change. That was Ezekiel 18:21 through 23. You may want to go back and mark those and think about that. That God's objective is to change us into a state that will make us happier and better, that God lives in a state of never-ending happiness, and He wants us to have it. So what then might be the magical moment that lets people out of hell? What might be the magic formula? What do you need to do to open the prison doors? Well, we get a glimpse in the Doctrine and Covenants later on. If you'll turn to section 88, Doctrine and Covenants 88, Starting in verse 29, he's talking about the quickening or the resurrection of the celestial people. So, let's empty the spirit world of all celestial people. So, they're quickened. Then in verse 30, 88, 30, he talks about the quickening of the terrestrial. So, we pull out all the celestial, then we pull out all the terrestrial. Then in verse 31, he says, let's quicken the telestial. So we've now pulled out all celestial, terrestrial, and telestial people out of the spirit world. They've been quickened. So who would be left? Who's left in the spirit world? It's the spirits of those people who were born and got a body, but are going, they're not going to get a kingdom of glory. They're going to outer darkness. These are the sons of perdition who did get a body, not the ones that followed Satan and were denied a body. There are some who got a body and will become sons of perdition. So verse 32 says, they who remain, meaning they're not celestial, they're not terrestrial, they're not telestial. They who remain will be resurrected. If you got a body, you will be resurrected. Nevertheless, they shall return again to their own place to enjoy that which they were willing to receive because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. So what is it that they might have received? Tell me if verse 33 answers that question for you. What is it that the sons of perdition never received? And that by insinuation here, the celestial, terrestrial, and telestial did receive. Verse 33, for what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him, and he receive not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. So, the sons of perdition will not receive a gift and they will not rejoice in the giver of that gift. What does that seem to suggest opens hell's doors and allows anyone to get out? I would suggest the gift is the atonement of the Savior. 
And that once you accept him, however, whatever that means, I don't know what that means. How does a telestial person accept the atonement versus a celestial person? I don't know. But we know in our lives, we've had degrees of light and degrees of darkness, right? And there's got to be a, a minimal level of, I accept the atonement and agree to play on his team. I agree to have its influence in my life that would get a celestial person out of hell. To me, it really opens up this idea, and I'm not saying this is doctrine, but to me, it opens up this idea, Bryce, that there's no sin greater than the atonement because the atonement truly has all the power. So if I am fitting into that space of a son of perdition, it's not necessarily about anything I've done. It's that I won't let the atonement work. I refuse the atonement. To me, my reading of these verses is the idea that the Lord has great power, all power, and the atonement is infinite, but he won't force me he doesn't control my will. In other words, that's a free will offering that only I can give. That's and I think, I think that's what it's saying. I think sometimes if I, for me, if I ever teach, well, if you do this, then you've gone too far. I don't think that's correct. I think that's what the adversary wants to teach. I think the Savior's like, he opens up his arms and says, receive me. Yeah, it's never too far. The atonement is infinite and can cleanse any sin, but you have to accept the atonement. And I think back in section 76, where it describes the sons of perdition, starting in verse 32, it describes Satan, and then 32, the sons of perdition. Verse 35, Doctrine and Covenant section 76, verse 35, says that the sons of perdition crucify him unto themselves and put him to an open shame. They will not ever accept the atonement, his gift, his offering. They refuse him, they refuse the giver, and they refuse the gift. They crucify him unto themselves and put him to an open shame. But I think sometimes we read verse 34, and it causes people to lose hope. When we, Whenever you read a verse that says something like, there is no forgiveness in this world, talk about something that's depressing. When I teach it, I try to say, it's not talking about you've done something that there's no forgiveness. Yeah. It's saying, repent, receive him. I think, I think that's what we're, we're looking at here, at least from my perspective. Yeah, let me throw one more scripture in. Why is it that Satan and the sons of perdition will never be redeemed? It's not because Jesus can't redeem them. It's not because the atonement isn't big enough. It's Doctrine and Covenant section 29, verse 44. That's the answer. The Lord tells us in section 29, verse 44, for they that believe not unto damnation, for they cannot be redeemed from their spiritual fall. Again, I'm inserting in verse 44, it doesn't say they can't be redeemed from their spiritual fall because they've gone too far and the atonement can't cleanse them. That's not the reason. It says very clearly they go off to eternal damnation and cannot be redeemed from their spiritual fall. Why? Verse 44. Because they won't repent. Because they will not repent. That's the issue. They will not repent. Therefore, they crucify Christ unto themselves, keep him out of their life, and then they have to suffer. So now, again, back to our comment that Seeing God correctly, God doesn't punish us for his glory. It's because he has a gift for us, a gift that will make us happy. 
and the only reason for our sorrow, the only reason for our punishment is that we change. And the moment we change, the doors open and we are freed from the punishment. And I would suggest that the change that needs to happen is the acceptance and the beginning to live the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. We keep his commandments. We bring him into our lives. Now, let me separate these again into a preparatory punishment and an eternal punishment. If souls in spirit prison can get out of hell, where I'm suggest, I think they're beginning their eternal punishment, the big eternal punishment. If souls, even in that environment, can end the punishment and get into a kingdom of glory by accepting the gift that was offered, what then does that say about the preparatory punishment that we feel here in life? It means repentance is about getting Jesus back into our lives. You remember what John the Baptist said? Make straight his paths, clear his paths out, prepare ye the way for the Savior. And then he goes on to describe that sometimes there's a mountain between me and Jesus. Well, tear the mountain down. Repentance is about getting Jesus back in my life. Because sometimes I do something and I create a mountain between me and the Savior. And that mountain causes pain in my life. That's the preparatory punishment. So how do you end the preparatory punishment in this life? How do you get the Spirit back? How do you now qualify for this sacrament? What is repentance? It's getting the Savior back into the life. It's receiving the gift. It's loving Him and living His gospel. It's making Him part of your life. You get the Savior back in your life. If that's what would free a soul in spirit prison— do you see what he's trying to say about this life? Now, Martin Harris has pushed the Savior out because he cares more about his property than he does about this book being printed that's going to save the world. He's pushing Jesus's priorities out of his life. I think he also says to Joseph, we've seen an angel. We, I know this is legitimate. The Lord can do it. The Lord can do it, right? Yeah. And I think this is back to the thing we talked about a couple podcasts ago when we asked the question, why does John the Baptist have Joseph baptize Oliver? And why does he have Oliver baptize Joseph? And the principle is simply, well, if you can do it, you need to do it. And that... In other words, the gospel's participatory, and sometimes, frankly, that's tough. Sometimes I just want to go to church and be taught. I don't want to have to do something. And the Lord's like, well, in my church, we're all picking up a pail. We're all working. And like I said, that can be tough sometimes. So what we're pushing away is his way, his method. We may not think we're pushing him away, but but it's kind of like Jesus in Gethsemane where he says, can I do this another way? And the Father says, there is no other way. He sends an angel to comfort him, basically saying there is no other way. So then Jesus then prays, if there's no other way, then I'm going to drink the cup. And I think that's what Martin Harris is pushing away is, I don't want to do it your way, Lord. I don't want to do it the way you've told me to do it. Can I find another way to do this? Now, do you remember what Jesus said to Peter when Peter suggested he find another way? Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to crucify me. And Peter says, no, 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 let's find another way. Do you remember the rebuke he got? 
Get thee behind me, Satan. Don't push my purposes out of the way. So Martin Harris has put a mountain between him and Christ saying, I don't want to do it your way. I want to find an easier way to do this. And repentance means, no, Lord, I don't want to do that. I want come back into my life and we'll do it your way. Repentance is the act of getting the Savior into your life. And he tells you right in here, he says, this is what I went through. And so let's get back to that. So here we go. If you accept the atonement, then his punishment, his payment suffices. And it covers your transgression and you don't ever have to pay eternal punishment. So if your preparatory punishment causes you to repent and get the Savior into your life, you avoid eternal punishment because Jesus paid that. He says, however, if you will not accept the gift, if you actually refuse his payment of it, then you have to pay it yourself. You have to pay your own punishment. Which suffering, he says, caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer in both body and spirit and would that I might not drink the bitter cup. This is what it cost me. Don't do that. Jesus is saying, let me pay for it. I already have. It's silly that it's silly to pay for it yourself when he so willingly paid for it himself. Now, total side note, I know this is a distraction, but I just, I can't resist. I cannot talk about this without pointing this out. Notice in verse 18, to make a point, Jesus is describing his suffering. For the first time I can find in Scripture, Jesus is trying, drawing attention to himself. But he's doing it to make a point. I need you to understand what the suffering is going to cost you by telling you what it cost me. And notice, Mike, he doesn't even finish the sentence before he does what? The moment he starts talking about himself and what he accomplished, he can't even finish the sentence without drawing glory to the Father. Notice that verse 18 does not end in a period. He says, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink, dash, Nevertheless, glory be to the Father. Do you remember back in premortal life when Lucifer said, I'll go do what you want me to do, but I get the credit? And do you remember when Jesus says, Father, thy will be done and thine will be the glory? He was true to that forever. He accomplished the greatest thing that anyone on this planet has ever accomplished, and he won't take credit for it. He points the credit to the Father. Anyway, total side note, just so you can see his character, the moment he starts to talk about himself, he points instantly and gives the credit to the Father. But there's the doctrine. You get to choose. If your preparatory punishment, if your, okay, the least degree when I withdrew my spirit, if your preparatory punishment changes you and causes you to reach out and invite the Savior back into your life, that's called repentance and you avoid eternal punishment. 
But if you will not invite the Savior in, no matter what, then you will pay your own eternal punishment. And that goes back to God is a God who simply wants us to have something better. And the moment we choose something better, the moment we change, his punishment is over. There is no more purpose for punishment, and it ends. There is an end to pain if you will choose a better way. And there's the deep doctrine. Historically, what do we do with this concept of the afterlife? And it hasn't always been lost, right? I know this was a new concept in Joseph's day, but wasn't there a time where men thought these things and taught these things? Truth has been taught to anyone who will listen to Heavenly Father. And I know there's been moments in the past, Mike, you've been telling me about them. So just as a second witness, tell us about people who have also taught this same truth and what happened to that. Not only have people taught this truth, we've seen the loss of truth, and the Bible as we have it is kind of a, a roadmap to all the places this teaching has gone. For example, if you want to create an understanding of the afterlife using the Old Testament, you are all over the map because the Old Testament or the Tanakh, as it's called, has been edited so many times, and it covered so much time that the positions of the editors and the scribes had different opinions. These ideas that God will punish us, but it's for our good, these were taught even by some of the earliest Christians. And so this is just kind of a little bit of a foray into some of the history. But if you really want to know more, you've got to go to the show notes where we footnote everything and you can pull on some of these threads or these ideas. So before we even talk about the Tanakh or the Old Testament. Before we even go there, I want to talk a little bit about a guy by the name of Socrates. And in in this text called Phaedo, it's towards the end. You got to go towards the end. He has this discussion with his friends. You see, they want him dead. The people there want Socrates dead. And so he gives this speech where he talks about what he thinks the afterlife is like. And he makes this interesting statement where he says, if we have this belief about the afterlife and that there is some kind of equity in the next life, for the soul is eternal, he says, if we have this belief, that that is a good belief because it creates men who are moral. And he just, Socrates just can't live in a world where there is no soul. And so he's absolutely convinced. And then I find this fascinating as I've studied Joseph Smith, and I don't know if Joseph Smith's ever read Phaedo. I don't know what his exposure to the classics was. But Socrates basically says that there's four divisions. There's four divisions in the next life. There's the holy ones. And then there's this group of what are called indeterminate characters. Sometimes I think that's me. I'm this one of indeterminate character. What do we do with this guy? But then he says there's those that are the fixable ones, that they've sinned, but they can be fixed. And then those that are so incurably wicked, they don't want to be fixed. Now, I don't know who he's quoting. I don't know, you know where he's been exposed to these ideas. But Joseph Smith in section 19, as he's giving Martin this revelation, it's the summer of 1829. Like, just wrap your brain around this. Joseph Smith isn't even 24 years old, and he's pulling back the curtain. And some of the greatest minds of Athens are talking about this way before Jesus. And the reason why I think this is important is because in scholarship, there's a strong argument that the 
Old Testament doesn't even discuss an afterlife or that it doesn't discuss a resurrection. Sometimes there is that distinction there. Now, to me, the Old Testament clearly teaches about an afterlife because we have some references which are troubling sometimes, like the reference with the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel 28, where Saul's worried about what's going to happen and they conjure up the ghost of Samuel. And in the footnote, if you read that, the scripture committee put that in there like, this cannot be a legitimate visitation from Samuel because you know that, that kind of thing doesn't happen. But I read 1 Samuel and I just say, okay, but what is the text saying? And why is that in 1 Samuel? And it seems to me that in the Old Testament, some of the editors and scribes and people that put this together had this belief that there were the shades, the Rephaim, the people that lived in Sheol, as it's called, in the underworld. And then you have the procession. It's a beautiful procession in Isaiah 14. I call it Isaiah's taunt, where they talk about the king of Babylon. When he goes to be with the shades in Isaiah 14 and the people look at him and it says that they narrowly look at him and they say, you're the guy. So to me, the Bible clearly teaches about this underworld, but in, in scholarship, at least there's this argument that it's like this morally neutral place. What I mean by that is that the good and evil are kind of there together, kind of mixing it up and later authors And prophets, as they're putting these things together in the Old Testament, really struggled with this because they thought, if that's the case, then why do the wicked go unpunished? And if the wicked go unpunished, how is that fair? And all these ideas are swirling around in the ancient world trying to answer these questions. Then you get into the idea of, well, what does it mean to prosper? In the seventh century, there's this big reform under Josiah. And the reformers seem to teach this idea that prospering has to do with living a good life and being materially blessed, but they don't really hammer any of these ideas of a resurrection. And the idea of the resurrection to me in the Old Testament from my reading seems to be largely lost. And I had a conversation with Robert J. Matthews about this one time. I was sitting in one of his classes and afterwards I asked him, why does the Old Testament not speak of the resurrection the way the Book of Mormon does? And his answer was, it just seems to have been lost to us. And I think that's part of the losses that Nephi laments when he sees in vision that many plain and precious truths were lost. And then in Robert J. Matthews' book, Sermons and Writings of Robert J. Matthews, he says, this is one of the fundamental principles that there's an afterlife and that there's a resurrection. And in my conversation with him, he said this, and it was really fascinating to me. He said, there's hints of the resurrection in the Old Testament, but it's not outwardly spoken of. So for example, if you do a careful reading of Genesis, where does everybody want to get buried by? They want to get buried by their spouse. Abraham wants to be buried by his spouse. Isaac does. Joseph, when he's in Egypt, says to his children, he's like, hey, you guys, when when we leave Egypt, we're going to be delivered. It's going to be a long time from now but take my sarcophagus, take my body, my bones, and bury me back with my family. Now, why would any of that matter? I want to rise with them. Yeah, it wouldn't matter if there's no afterlife. It wouldn't matter if there's no resurrection. When Robert Matthews said that to me, I said, you know what, that really makes sense. And I've spent a few years like trying to dig this out, like what happened and what is the Bible really saying? Now, Joseph Smith said this. He said that the saints should study the purpose of life and death. In fact, they should study it more than any other subject. Study it day and night, he said. And then he observed that if we have any claim on our Heavenly Father for anything, it is knowledge on this important subject. And for those of you that want to just geek out, there's a great book 
by a guy by the name of Alan Bernstein. Now he's not LDS, but what he did was he did a scholarly assessment of all the ancient traditions of the afterlife and hell and collected all this stuff. And this book's called The Formation of Hell. And we give you a ton of stuff in the show notes. You can kind of look at some of these threads and pull on them. But I love these sets of questions. As I kind of have read his book and gone through it, I ask these questions. And as I ask them, I say, okay, how many of these are checked by the revelations of the restoration? How many of these can we check off and say, okay, that's addressed? So here's some of these questions. Do we live after this life? That's a big one. Are the wicked and the righteous in one place that's morally neutral or are they separated? If they are separated, how permeable is the barrier between life and death? What is the balance between justice and mercy? How exactly are the wicked punished in the next life if they're punished at all? If God's will is absolute, why will some seem to suffer for eternity? Now, Bryce has addressed that. Can prayers or dedicatory rites help the dead? And where did the idea of purgatory even come from? And as I've gone through these questions that we just read, pretty much every one of them in here is addressed by the revelations of the restoration or something like those questions is answered. The Book of Mormon is a text which leaves Jerusalem before the captivity in Babylon. So think about all the things the Book of Mormon authors aren't tainted with. They're not tainted with the ideas that are coming from Babylon. It's not mixing with Greek philosophy or any of those Greek ideas or Rome. The Book of Mormon takes place during so much of the what's called the Second Temple period in the Bible, but it's not tainted or mixing with all these other ideas. And so it's like this pure river that flows, and it's because it's not been tainted by Babylonian influences. The prophets that wrote the record left before the captivity. This is one reason the explanations of the underworld are so different in the Book of Mormon than in the Old Testament. And another reason would be the Egyptian influence on the text, something that can be found if we look closely. And we'll talk about that later when we get into the Old Testament. We're going to look at some of those ideas. But in the Egyptian context, it's radically different than the Old Testament. In the Egyptian context, there's an afterlife, there's an underworld, there's a resurrection, and there's an ascension. There's all this stuff happening in the Egyptian stuff that's not necessarily in the Bible. And yet, if we read the Book of Mormon, we read about a resurrection. We read about a spirit world. And so the Old Testament is seriously lacking, and it shows a world of the dead that does appear to be morally neutral. In other words, a place where good and bad departed souls coexist. We see this in the Babylonian text, this place where the good and bad kind of commingle. We see this in the Samuel narrative. We see this in Isaiah 14, a little bit of that. I think that some of these ideas that were swirling around in Babylon have crashed into these biblical texts. They've entered into them. And that's why the Bible reads the way it does. And so in Alan Bernstein's book, The Formation of Hell, he makes this statement, which I just found profound. He quotes a couple of passages in in Ezekiel 32 and Isaiah, and in Ezekiel 32, he essentially makes the case that there's kind of this map of hell, if you do a careful reading, and there seems to be some distinctions, or at least a hint of them. And then he talks about the shame in Isaiah 14 that the leader of Babylon goes through, and he says, there must be something there. There must be something there that was lost. And then he makes this point. He says, these verses tell us a vitally important point. The different approaches to death and punishment after death, which occur in the Hebrew Bible, do not develop towards some perfect or more sophisticated position. No linear model applies here. 
It is not the case that the religious writings of each century refine earlier, primitive ones. Rather, the different positions expressed simultaneously reflect various sensibilities within the religious community. They suggest a competition within the biblical tradition for the loyalty of reciters, scribes, and editors. That statement says so much, and here's why. It shows us what the Book of Mormon is. Clearly, these religious differences that existed over time as these communities developed to interpret and define what it meant to follow God, clearly these differences are reflected in the text of the Old Testament, and there's a whole genre of texts about the afterlife and the resurrection that don't make it into the Bible, but they make it in the Book of Mormon. And from the very beginning, you have Lehi in the Book of Mormon saying, my religion is different. Let me throw one in. Lehi's son Jacob in 2 Nephi 9 says, For as death hath passed upon all men to fulfill the merciful plan of the great Creator, there must needs be a power of resurrection. And the resurrection must needs come unto man by reason of the fall. And the fall came by reason of transgression. Wherefore, it must needs be an infinite atonement. Save it should be an infinite atonement, this corruption could not put on incorruption. And he goes on. That's, that's, that's Second Nephi. That's early on in the Book of Mormon. They just established the doctrine that the atonement provided a resurrection for all men to rise up. And he says, if this flesh should rise no more, our spirits must become subject to that angel who fell from before the presence of the eternal God and become the devil. And our spirits must become like unto him, and we become devils. But the whole idea is that didn't happen because we do have a Redeemer. It was very clear from the beginning of the Book of Mormon that Jesus provides a resurrection for all mankind. But we're not going to get that in your face in the Old Testament because of this editing which took place. And Bryce and I have talked about this before. A lot of times when I talk about the editing, he'll say things like, don't edit Jesus out of your life. And I remember when he said that, I was like, "That that's it. That's the answer with this editing that's going on. All these ideas are swirling around when the Jews meet the Greeks right around 300 BC. The Greeks take with them these ideas about a resurrection and living after death, and they crash into Judaism, which had kind of pushed against it. And so that is where we think some of the ideas come forth in Daniel. But from that, there's a whole other genre of texts from what are called apocalyptic prophets. And one of the most famous ones that you've probably heard of is Enoch. And there's all this literature swirling around with Enoch, and we'll cite it in the show notes. You can read the 22nd chapter of the book of Enoch yourself, and in it, Enoch goes to the underworld. And just like Phaedo, he talks about, you guessed it, divisions. Divisions, and then the idea that the suffering is temporary. He's also talking about things like an ascent, a resurrection, a just God, and all of these ideas that are swirling around that don't make it into the Bible. They get edited out. And I see a lot of parallels between what Enoch sees and stuff that Lehi and Jacob talk about, which then that brings us to Christianity. And the word in the Greek a lot of times is Hades. There's one word in the Peter literature where it says Tartarus. And so from the Greek concept, there was the underworld, which was Hades. But if you're really in trouble, if you got to go to the principal's office— You're way down in Tartarus. And the idea was that there are these channels that where the 
spirits would go down like the, this rock in the underworld. But if you went down the tunnel way down, I, the image I have is almost like Gollum in Lord of the Rings, like where he's way, way down, right? Gollum's the, like the worst. He's beneath the orcs. He's way down there. Well, Tartarus is for man, you're in trouble. And that's the text in Peter where he says, you know, Jesus is going to free those guys. But all throughout the New Testament texts, we read that Jesus conquers death. And so Hades can mean death, it can mean hell, it can mean the spirit world. But in all these contexts, the Christian writers that make it into the canon are saying, Jesus conquered it. And then you get some of those passages, right, where Jesus says, hey, we're going to go preach to these guys. And so then the early Christians started thinking, and they said, well, then is there redemption for them? And we talked about this when we talked about Joseph Knight. Origin about 185, 200 AD says things like, well, if God's will is sovereign and if God is love and if we're his children, wouldn't it make sense that hell would be a temporary thing? I mean, we're, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to mess up. But wouldn't it make sense that if we did, once we figured that out, that we get out? Now, he's, he's going to get a bad rap in history, but I like when I read origin stuff, I kind of lean that way. I have an optimistic view of humanity. And so when I see someone mess up, I keep going back to that quote by President Kimball where he's like, most people that are sinning, they're just trying to get the right thing, but they're going about it the wrong way. And I think we do this for ourselves, don't we, Bryce? When we mess up, we're like, well, I was having a bad day, right? But when someone else is mean, we're like, well, that guy's a jerk. But yet that guy is a person. And God knows that person and he sees the motive and the heart and all these things. And so I kind of like origin, but then later you get Augustine and Augustine writes to say in one and the same sense that eternal life will be without end, but that eternal punishment will end is entirely absurd. So Augustine takes those words eternal and how does he read them? They're no longer the name of God. They're a duration. Eternal punishment lasts for eternity. It becomes a big hammer that you hold over people. If you don't come to church, if you don't do the church activities, then you're going to suffer for all eternity. And it's a tool of control. And the Lord says, any act of control, you lose authority and you lose power. And what is the history of Christianity after Augustine? We have, this isn't a podcast to denigrate anybody, but yeah, there's a history of If I have religious authority over you, I can hold purgatory over you. Your ticket out is based on doing these things. And we get this idea of doing penance versus repentance. And so that's just a brief sketch of these ideas. But as far back as Plato, he's talking about this. And even further back in some of the Egyptian stuff, which we're barely touching on, but then Even in Enoch, we read this, and to bring it full circle back to where Bryce was, and I kind of get the chills even talking about this, here's a 23-year-old young man getting pure revelation, and he's saying things that great thinkers have wrestled with, and then these ideas have been squelched, and they've been put down, and now, right out of the gate, if you look at the date, We don't even have the church yet. It's not even restored yet. And great truths about the afterlife and who God is. I love how Bryce said, okay, it's neat to connect the dots on the afterlife, but what does that tell you about God? And to me, that's where I like feel that. That that changes me because now what? He's not an umpire trying to call you out. 
He's a coach trying to wave you home. And the way you view him, how you view him, will determine whether or not you have faith and hope. And you have to see him as, I am not vindictive. I am not punishment-oriented. I don't try and get even. I'm not getting revenge. He simply, he wants us to change and have a better happiness. And the moment we change, the punishment is over and the objective has been met. That is a God that wants me to be saved. By the way, that tells me how to be a parent. How to be a parent. Or to be a teacher or whatever your job is. If you have a job where you have to work with people... As soon as they change, yeah, you remove whatever punishment was given. I almost wish we could take Section 19. It'd be awesome if the Lord could be in charge of all of our criminal justice system and he could see your hearts. Because I, I really look at that like, I think that will be so fair. When your hearts change and you're ready to move on, let's move forward. And we live in this messy world where we don't know people's hearts. But I really do like this as the purpose And also just a smidgen where the Lord just pulls the curtain aside and says, let me tell you about who I am and who my dad is. The Lord is just so great here. So I really love this. I love geeking out about the history, but really it's about the Savior. And getting the Savior in your life. Now, before we leave section 19, I've got to throw three of my favorite words in. And if I can just throw this out there as why we study the scriptures. Section 19, verse 23, the Savior says, learn of me, listen to my words, walk in the meekness of my spirit. Let me just boil that down to three words that hopefully guide your study of the scriptures. The reason you need to learn of him is so that you can listen as the Spirit makes application in your life and then go walk. Learn, listen, and walk. That should guide how we study the Scriptures. I'm going to turn to the Scriptures and learn of Him. And then I'm going to listen. What does this have to do with me? How do I now live? How do I change my life? How do I now behave? Learn, listen, walk. That is, in its simplicity, why we study the Scriptures. If you're not listening to what the Scriptures say about your life and how to change your life, if you're not applying them, you've missed something, because they need to end up causing you to change how you walk. Learn, listen, and walk. I just, I love those verses. Uh, It's just kind of a small little glimpse into section 19. In closing, I want to talk a little bit about Martin. I know we've talked about him before, but I certainly wouldn't want anybody to judge me on some of my worst decisions. And Martin's getting a rough deal. I mean, section 19 is the Lord kind of chastising Martin. And I think Sometimes we miss that, like the context and everything, and it matters. He says in verse 26, don't cover your property. So he's kind of chastising him there. And then in verse 35, he says, you pay the printer and release yourself from bondage. And then verse 33, misery you will receive if you slight these counsels. I mean, the Lord is certainly being strict and he's being stern. And I don't want to end on that note because Down H. Oaks gives a great talk. And you can go to the show notes and, and, and read his entire talk. And I'm just kind of summarizing the main points of it. But he essentially says, let's give Martin his due. Let's look at the good that he did, because that's how the Lord works with us. And so he says, for example, 
Martin qualified to be one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, and he was true to it. I mean, that's a big deal. Another thing that Martin did was he was there when the church was organized, and he was part of that process. Let's not forget, Martin pays for the publication of the Book of Mormon. Like He he bites the bullet on that one, and he takes the cost, and he's faithful to not only the witness— but he doesn't come back to Joseph later and say, hey, you owe me money. He just, he does what he promised he would do. He kept his word. And then Elder Oaks talks about this. He says that Martin's brother, Emer, went on a mission in 1832, and he went on a mission for about a year, and he baptized 100 people. And during most of his time as a missionary, right next to him was Martin. And he's being a missionary, just faithful and true. And then Elder Oaks says, by the way, Emer's my great-great-grandfather. The H in Oaks, down H Oaks. Harris. That's Harris, yeah. So he really does do a lot of good things. Not only does he serve a mission, but then later he's called in 1834 to be part of Zion's camp. They go from Ohio all the way down to Missouri, and it's a 900-mile journey, and they're not driving in a car. I mean, this is not not an easy thing. So he does that. He joins Zion's camp, and then he fulfills the command to choose the Quorum of the Twelve. We kind of skipped over that in Section 18, but part of Section 18 is preparing to get the church ready, and to do that, the three witnesses choose the Twelve, and he does that. He's faithful and true, and then in 1838, during the apostasy, he spends some time out of the church, but during that time, he's the caretaker of the Kirtland Temple, and then in 1870, he returns to the church. And he's rebaptized, and he dies in Clarkson, Utah in 1875. And Elder Oaks really does a great job of just wrapping up the good high points of Martin's life. So I think sometimes it's difficult. I mean, I would not want to have my name in the scriptures associated with the dumb stuff that I did. And I think sometimes we read it, and we sometimes say things like, oh, good thing I'm not Martin. And I think that Martin's in here so that we can see Martin in us, but I see the Lord looking at us and he sees the good. He's not an umpire trying to catch us out. He's waving us home. And that's how I wanted to end with my witness of Martin and what he did, but also more importantly, my witness of how the Savior views us, because I really do think that positive outlook, I think it motivates people. And all he wants is your happiness. He knows how to be happy, and he just wants you to be happy. And as soon as we change whatever punishment, whatever consequences that our bad decisions brought, there's no purpose anymore. That's the God that we worship, one who simply wants us to be happy. Of him, both Mike and I testify. And with that, we'll see you next week. Section 20 through 22. The restoration of the church. We're going to get the constitution of the church and the revelation that comes while the church is being organized is monumental. It's the, it's the, that's how the Lord waves his arms and gets our attention. In the middle of a meeting, he gets a revelation and we'll talk about it. Great stuff next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.